1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co host Ron Baker. And folks on today's
2: show, we have our interview with Matthew Feeney. Hey, Ron, how's it going? Very good, Ed. I'm always thrilled when we have a Cato person on. I love Cato.
1: Oh, I love Cato too. I support support them for a while, and um, hopefully one day we'll be guests with uh, my, my one of my heroes, Caleb Brown. <laughs> That's yeah. what we aspire to. <laughs> uh, but anyway, let's get uh, Matthew uh, in here. Let me read uh, the bio so we can get started. Matthew Feeney is the director of Cato's Project on Emerging Technologies. So you can guess why he's on the show, folks, and uh, where where he works on issues concerning the intersection of new technology and civil liberties. Before Cato, Matthew worked at Reason Magazine, another one of my faves, as assistant editor. He also worked as the American Conservative, the Liberal Democrats, and the Institute of Economic Affairs. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, the Huffington Post, The Hill, San Francisco Chronicle, The Washington Examiner, and others. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Matthew Feeney. Thank you very much for having me. So how does one get to become Cato's Director of Project on Emerging Technologies?
3: It's a long series of unfortunate <laughs> events. Um, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's a good question. Uh, I was, as, as you mentioned, in um, journalism for a few years um, in the D.C. area. And uh, kind of by accident, um, the vice president of research at Cato at the time, uh, called Brink Lindsay. Uh, asked me in for a chat and persuaded me that maybe a, a, a job in policy would be worth pursuing. And uh, I started with work on uh, what's called yeah, the sharing economy uh, before moving on to work on body cameras and drones. And uh, around then, the, the president of um, the Cato Institute thought that maybe uh, the think tank needed a project dedicated to emerging technology. So I'm still doing my own writing uh, but, and research, but also uh, editing books and commissioning uh, papers, organizing conferences on uh, new and emerging stuff like uh, drones, but also uh, driverless cars, smart cities, facial recognition, that kind of stuff.
1: Well, this is stuff that Ron Love and I to geek out on, so we're really looking forward to having you. But let, let's talk about the, the latest book that you are the editor of, and that is Eyes to the Sky, Privacy and Commerce in the Age of the Drone. And the book starts out well, uh, with a, a brief essay from you laying things out, but talking about the the regulation part, and let's let's get kind of that boring stuff out of the way. Uh, the FAA amended their laws what about four years ago? Is that right? 2016, 17? Does that have that about right?
3: Well, there's been a whole series of uh, drone-related laws, but okay. um, I think it was you know two thousand and twelve is when you first get like the the FAA mandate to figure out what to do with these new small <laughs> flying machines.
1: Mm-hmm. And then th- they subsequently have uh, started to make some adjustments to that, including, uh, the, I guess the biggest one was 2016, 2017, where they finally defined like 55 pounds and under. There's all, all of these little, these regulations around that. Talk a little bit about th- that that piece of it.
3: Yeah, well, sure. It's uh, been an interesting journey. And, and part of what what motivated me to uh, embrace this, this project was I, I felt as if there wasn't a um, a book that dealt with the, the, the commerce questions and the privacy questions associated with drones. And drones are, a, I think, a fascinating new technology for people of my ideological background, you know, broadly libertarian, to think about because the the history of the laws you've been talking about are a good example of how a new technology can be born, as um, Adam Thierry-Makeda says, uh, born captive. So uh, <laughs> the people invent, um, invent these new... Um, these new cool toys or, or tools, drones. And the FAA uh, looks at that and thinks, well, that's ours. You know, this is um, a flying machine. It's in national airspace. But it also fits very awkwardly into the existing regulatory framework. Uh, as um, Sarah Sachsenberg wrote the, a great chapter, I think, in the book on um, the history of um, all of this legislation, you know, she notes that Uh, Drones couldn't exactly be outfitted with uh, fire extinguishers, and it seemed a little silly uh, to have uh, pilots going through the same kind of pilot certification. Uh, So the FAA was in this uh, unenviable position of having to deal with drones without um, an overarching framework that accounted for how new they were. Uh, and that's that's part of the problem. So, yeah, you get you get laws saying, look, FAA figure all this out. And then throughout the years, you have discussions about uh, line of sight regulations, whether um, at what height they can fly and what they can carry and and things like that.
1: So I want to tell you a quick story, Matthew, that happened to me about three weeks ago. I am in a town called Allen, Texas. We have a huge high school football stadium that seats 17000 people for high school football. It's just- Uh, But it also has the largest band, 750 kids in the band. So (laughs) anyway, we were at the at the game during Friday Night Lights and in about middle of the second quarter. And this was uh, a it was it was just starting to get dark. And the referee suddenly stops the game, stops the game and starts pointing over the end zone because there was a drone flying hovering over the referee assumed that it was some kind of reconnaissance for the one of the football teams and was really getting upset turns out the allen coach had to walk out and tell tell the uh, the the referee no no that's the allen police department <laughs> they're flying a drone in the end zone doing crowd surveillance <laughs> so just it was just kind of looped all of this together and People had known about this, but I just thought it was funny that the the, the refs took it one way, which was the privacy concern, right? And it, yet, what it was was is actually the, the or from a from a football perspective, everybody. The, what was really happening was the police were looking at it.
3: <laughs> well, I, I will say I've been working on the issue for a few years, and football high school privacy is not an issue that I've uh, thought about. But <laughs> but now that you mention it, it is. Um, it is interesting, right? Because uh, part of the problem with regulating these new and emerging technologies are the, the 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 There are many many obvious applications that come to mind, but then there are others that aren't so um, are so front of center, but nonetheless pose uh, pose difficult questions. Uh, you, you, you mentioned the police use of drones. Uh, that that is the subject of a few chapters in the book because uh, I think if you're worried about civil liberties, drones occupy this really unfortunate sweet spot of being platforms for pretty intrusive um, surveillance technologies but also being relatively cheap Uh, so there are about what eighteen thousand law enforcement agencies in the united states and uh, most of them are not nearly as well funded right as the LAPD or NYPD and uh, helicopters are relatively expensive but what we've seen is uh, that when you have uh, relatively inexpensive uh, flying cameras that police may express an interest in those. Uh, And we haven't even discussed um, the Homeland Security use of predator drones, uh, which can sometimes be used for state and local uh, purposes.
1: Yeah, and I I guess there's recent uh, happenings in Baltimore, correct? That where the the city of Baltimore had put uh, drone surveillance over, what, 90% of the city?
3: Well, uh, so technically it wasn't a drone. It was a small manned aircraft. Uh, wow. However, uh, but, but in, in this kind of space, we should be asking when, not if questions. Uh, the, <laughs> the actual um, technology, we know that the, the technology to keep cities under surveillance with unmanned aircraft does exist, and we only have to look at our foreign policy to see examples of that. Uh, but there, you know, the important thing is to keep in mind, it's the military, and there the constraints are mostly fiscal. Which is these are expensive. Predator drones are not cheap. They are outside the um, budgets of most uh, uh, law enforcement agencies in America. But I think what you saw in Baltimore, which was, as you say, it was a manned aircraft keeping most of the city under uh, surveillance using technology originally designed for use in the military. Uh, the company that did this had the unambiguous name persistent surveillance systems, and it basically <laughs> gives um, the the users uh, what, what's what been described as uh, Google Earth with TiVo, which is you just keep a city under surveillance and the police come and they can say, look, we had a, a robbery at 123 Smith Street, and you can look to see where the cars went afterwards. And you can see why that would be attractive to to law enforcement. A, a big part of the problem with the Baltimore um, project, though, wasn't just, I would say, the the, uh, the degree, uh, the, the scale of the surveillance, but also the lack of transparency. Uh, this program went forward without members of the town council knowing, without the mayor apparently knowing, uh, let alone you know, the governor of Maryland certainly didn't know. And that is a unfortunately persistent theme in uh, American law enforcement surveillance debates is Many people learning about the surveillance tools through reporting, not through a transparent local government.
1: Well, it's funny you mention that because it did did come up here. And the reason why I know about the drone in Allen is because I had listened to a Cato event where they said one of the things you should do is go to your city council and start asking questions and it wasn't me personally but I'm the in part of the uh, part of the libertarian P- county uh, party here and we did and we asked them this and they first they wouldn't answer the question it took them a month before they would answer the question <laughs> but they finally yep. did it they finally fessed up yep we got one <laughs> well
3: sure i am not surprised and uh, that there, there is an interesting um, tension i think we should briefly uh, allude to which is Look, uh, police don't want the bad guys to know what tools they're using to catch them. And uh, it seems like a, a valid um, concern to me. Um, what, I will, what I will say, though, is uh, the, the the benefits to law enforcement have to be outweighed, um, have to be weighed against the cost to a, a liberal democracy where citizens are just not aware what their police are doing and just have to take it out like good faith. Uh, and... Uh, Anyone who has seen shows like, you know, The Wire will be aware that, you know, criminals have known their phones are liabilities for a long time, and uh, not all criminals uh, are necessarily going to catch on to uh, new surveillance methods. Um, But uh, but I think it's always worth just saying, you know, the law enforcement have an interest in being somewhat... uh, how to put it, um, not being transparent about uh, their use of surveillance technology. But I, I, I do think transparency, nonetheless, is an important value when it comes to these sorts of things.
1: Yeah, showing sure, you couple that with, you know, this cell phone data and stuff like that. I mean, I, I heard an interesting thing, and I think it might have been on a, another Cato event where they said, we're, we're starting to see an emergence, perhaps, of a new right. A, it's not just a right to privacy, but a, a, a right to be anonymous in a crowd. You know, that that there's that you should know you, you, yeah, you can't expect privacy when you're out and about, but you can ex- expect a certain amount of anonymity.
3: Well, uh, this is a. Uh, uh, a, a topic for a whole podcast in and of itself. But <laughs> but I, I will say that, that for, for most of our species history, we've had to rely on scientific facts to aid us with anonymity, which is that the human memory is not perfect, and we regularly go about our day walking down streets and whatnot, and we easily forget uh, who is um, who we've seen and uh, cameras were the first uh, one of the first technologies to really impede on this saying well actually no you could be caught on camera and you don't have a right to privacy out in public. And If you're interested in Fourth Amendment law, this so-called right, reasonable expectation of privacy is the bedrock of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Uh, And I think it's led to some pretty unfortunate rulings, but that may be a discussion for another time.
1: Well, no, this is uh, great, Matthew. We're up against our first break. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, uh, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to our upcoming shows. We do have a sponsor of our Patreon channel, and that is 90 Minds. If you need a mind, get one at 90minds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome.
2: It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. And yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports.
1: Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com.
4: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? for a commercial-free version of the Soul of Enterprise, go to Patreon.com/tsoe and subscribe now.
0: We don't follow; we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Matthew Feeney, the director of Cato's project on emerging technologies in his book, Eyes to the Sky. And Matthew, I... (laughs) I would imagine, is, is it true that the FCC and the FAA are the two primary regulators at the um, federal level of drones?
3: Uh, yes, when you're thinking about drones, it's FAA. Uh, and FCC is important uh, because of the control of these things, right? Which right. is um, the communications between the device and the controller.
2: And and I know this is new technology, and it, this must be just really hard to keep up with because I'm sure it's changing daily. but. What what are those two agencies' philosophical outlook with respect to this technology? Are they more this is a sandbox, let them play, or they do they take the precautionary principle, or are they somewhere in between?
3: Well, with FAA, I think you're you're definitely talking about a a safety first, ground it until you have permission approach. And uh, I, I want to look. I, I'm a I'm a libertarian. I'm pretty skeptical of a lot of these alphabet soup agencies, but I don't want to make it sound as if everyone at the FAA is technophobic or, you know, trying to to ground cool new things, but they have a mandate to keep the national airspace safe. Um, I don't think on my long list of things the government does, it's not very high on the one I have real complaints about. Uh, (laughs) And I I do think that um, they have um, been trying to do, to to integrate this new technology uh, into American airspace, but uh, part of the reason I I wanted this book to come out is I think the history reveals um, some interesting uh, some interesting lessons here. Uh, If you look around the world, I I, I think it's fair to say that there are other jurisdictions where drones um, have a bit of an easier time. Amazon first tested its delivery drone in England, and I thought Hmm. you know it must be sort of frustrating if you're working at the FAA to see one of America's most famous innovative companies having to go abroad to test right. its, new, its new tool. Uh, but that, I think, goes to a question of, of regulatory outlook writ large. Uh, so it's not just the FAA. You also have uh, another agency, the FDA, which has a similar approach, which is, look, if, if you're making drugs, we have to approve it before it hits the market. But it's not the only approach, and this is what I think is kind of interesting. You have um, an agency like NISTA, for example, uh, where there are outlined safety requirements for cars. But it's not as if um, they have to approve every single car that comes forward. There's just a set of standards that says, look, if you want to sell a car in America, it's got to have seat belts and it's got to have airbags and it has to have certain brake requirements. Uh, now there are certain things that can happen to you if you violate those safety standards, but it's not as if every single thing has to, every single model of a car has to go through the kind of process that we've seen with the FDA, for example.
2: Right. We had a story a few weeks back about a city in Australia that has been getting drone deliveries. I forget if it was 50,000 or a half million so far. Why haven't we seen that here? in the well, uh,
3: Yeah, it's uh, so one I think uh I would just say practical reasons. Um a lot of these drones um can't carry very heavy goods. Um, it's in urban areas. And so while the technology is there, there's this, um, we should always keep in mind, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And it might be a good marketing gimmick for certain companies to deliver things via drone, but it's not always the best option. However, the main reason is, look, we, we have regulations um, that have made it difficult to engage in that kind of behavior. Uh, there have been uh, uh, rules, for example, that require that uh, drones always be within line of sight of the person controlling the drone, uh, which makes delivery drones rather impractical. And, uh, there are restrictions on, uh, on the time of day, uh, and also, uh, yeah, the, the, the altitude. And, and so I, I think it's, it's just the case that, uh, this town in Australia has, um, more permissive environment where people can feel that they can deliver these things. Uh, but I, am not an expert on Australian law or, uh, or, or which companies are involved. So I don't mm-hmm. want to, um, you know, may just be possible that they're being skirting with the law themselves in Australia. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I would say certainly look, uh, th- there are legal reasons in the U S that you'd probably be hesitant to do that. But I also think we, we should remember there are some practical reasons why you may not want to use a drone to deliver something.
2: Gotcha. Um, there was a drone incident last year at a Pennsylvania power substation. You wrote about it in a Cato article. Uh, what are the threats and risks from drones to public infrastructure, like airports and power stations, things like that? And are you worried about them?
3: I, I am. Um, I don't want to make it sound as if uh, the the threat is you know an existential threat to all of America's power grid or or anything like that. But we we should keep in mind that. Drones are uh, platforms. You can mount cameras to them, but you can also mount ropes attached to, with copper wire, which is what happened in the incident you you just highlighted, where uh, someone flew a drone with copper hanging from it into a Pennsylvania power station, presumably with the intention of you know causing causing nuisance. But they could also be used to smuggle contraband into prisons or you could fly drones into airplanes about to take off or land at airports. Uh, th- there are all kinds of mischievous things you could do uh, with drones. The, the issue, um, to your point earlier about the FCC, is that uh, oftentimes regulations get in the way of the best way to address these issues. Because there, there, there's certainly technology out there where you can um, point these uh, devices at a drone and they interrupt... The uh, connectivity between the drone and its um, controller, but uh, the FCC will be on your case if you get, if you uh-huh. do that. Uh, and also keep in mind, um, drones are aircraft under FAA, and it is certainly a felony to interfere with the flight of an aircraft. Uh, I, I this is actually one of the rare drone podcasts we've done, and we haven't done the "Can I shoot my drone?" question. <laughs> so I'll just get it out of the way. And, and I was gonna—that yeah. was
2: my next question, Matthew. So beautiful, right. you anticipated it.
3: Sure, but uh, yeah. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but I would strongly recommend that people do not shoot drones uh, because uh, you'll be in serious, serious trouble uh, with with the law uh, because it's you know the the deliberate attempt to at downing of an aircraft. Uh, so people have talked about nets, or I think in the Netherlands the police have experimented training eagles to take down drones. <laughs> but we're in this uh, fascinating area, again, where the technology is just moving faster than the law can keep up with, where you have drones that offer really great benefits in many situations, and um, it's a great new burgeoning industry, but at the same time, there are risks. And actually, I think it was last weekend, uh, uh, the the Iraqi prime minister, there was an attempted assassination against him involving drones. Uh, The president of Venezuela, Maduro, was also um, the target of an attempted drone assassination. So I I think um, in in many of these discussions, we're asking when, not if questions. As the drones improve, eventually some public official will get hurt by one of these. Uh, And what I hope is that we don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, All new and emerging technologies come with risks. You know, the car has killed people. Um, The airplane has killed people. Um, All new technologies come with certain risks. But uh, because the answers to these sort of questions are difficult, I don't think is a good enough reason to ground them forever.
2: As a property owner, what can I do, though, to somebody who's harassing me with a drone?
3: In the moment, uh, not much. Uh, Well, there's a lot you could do, but as we've discussed, um, you'd be opening yourself up to potential charges and a whole host of issues. Uh, However, something that, that is discussed in the book is how drones fit into Old law to do with nuisance, harassment, privacy invasion, these sorts of things. We have hundreds of years of Anglo-American law that deals with uh, nuisance, trespass, all of these, um, all of these torts. And I think you know, the best that you can do to, in order to avoid being arrested is probably to go inside and call the local cops and um, see what they can do about it. Uh, but if you actually know who's who is uh, flying the drone, or you can identify that, there's potentially a civil suit if they're you know, flying low and buzzing outside your bedroom, or if they're knocking into your property and damaging it, then I think we have, fortunately, uh, hundreds of years of common law to build off of.
2: Right, right. What other what other uses are there for drones that we might not even be thinking about, but folks like you have? <laughs>
3: Well, I think everyone's been thinking about right um, hobbyists with photography. So certainly in filmmaking, photography very common. Uh, there's been discussions about using them in firefighting, search and rescue, but also in agriculture, engineering, building inspection, uh, architecture, education, sport and entertainment. You know, you, some of you may have seen um, these drone light shows of people doing you know these really neat displays with drones. Uh, like, like all technologies, I think um, the, the only limit on what people can do is the limit of human imagination. There's going to be a lot of interesting new things that people, uh, people do with them. Uh, but a- anytime you see an airplane, you can think, well, you know, maybe one day we could do that with drones. Uh, certainly uh, in the context of uh, agriculture and firefighting, that's where you see that discussion. Uh, but uh, one, one, one part that I don't think we've discussed yet is an emergent sport. If you go onto ESPN plus, you can see drone racing, right? that there are people mm, who mm. Um, compete doing drone obstacle courses. And, and that's pretty cool.
2: Do you think we'll ever have autonomous flight?
3: Yes, Uh, I I think, um, not to scare any of your audience, but I think with airplanes, that's basically what we have now. (laughs) I think a lot of of pilots um, do a little bit of takeoff and landing, but most of the time you're in the air with an airplane, it's a computer that's flying. Uh, And I don't mean to uh, demean uh, pilots who have a lot of responsibility, and I'm not saying that airplanes are easy to fly, but fortunately we're at a stage where uh, a lot of the flying that takes place is autonomous. now, human beings are much better for organizing and dealing with rowdy passengers and orchestrating evacuations and things like that. Uh, but the actual technology for fully automated takeoff and landing, I, I don't think is very far off at all.
2: I mean, we've already made some flights, right? Like FedEx. Haven't FedEx done some autonomous flights?
3: I'm not familiar with that particular example, but, but it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me um, at all. Uh, the the, the mechanics strike me as relatively straightforward. Uh, but again, it's like it's similar to the discussion of you could get rid of a lot of the drivers of trains, uh, for example. But when it comes to safety and uh, things like that, um, humans still have a comparative advantage.
2: Right. The psychology of having those pilots up there with skin in the game, I think, gives a lot of people comfort.
3: That's right. Yeah, I think it does.
2: <laughs> well, Matthew, this has been great. Unfortunately, we're up against our break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of Ed or me, send us an email, email to ask T-S-O-E. At verisage.com check out patreon.com tsoe and become one of our subscribers that channel is now uh, sponsored by 90 minds get ahead hire a mind check them out at 90minds.com and at a certain tier of our patreon membership you can get a shout out on the show like geraldine carter did check geraldine out that she thinks big coaching and her podcast smart strategy for cpas and now a word from our sponsors.
0: Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa,
1: play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com.
4: Commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it.
1: let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome.
2: It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports.
1: Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com.
0: This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
1: And we are on with our guest, Matthew Feeney. He is the author of the book, Eyes to the Sky. Well, not the author, I'm sorry, editor of the book. We appreciate it. just make that that, that clear. Um, and we've been talking about drones and stuff, but Matthew is part of the, the director of, of Project on Emerging Technologies. A lot of other things that are pretty interesting that we'd love to talk to you about. Um, the first one is, the, I, I guess the, the, the Feds really like to assert the, the airspace because they've always done that. But it seems that states are going to be the ones that start to regulate the autonomous vehicles. It's going to be more of a state by state situation. What's the latest thinking on that? Are we, we have any states authorized fully autonomous vehicles yet? Are they getting close or is the technology there? I guess would be the, the more important question.
3: Well, uh, the, there isn't anywhere um, I think where you have you know fully autonomous without people having to sit behind a wheel. Um, but again, it's similar to the, the the airplane question just before. The question maybe isn't is is it possible to do that technologically, and is it legal yet? Uh, you, you've seen a bunch of uh, trials, right? You have Waymo, the Google spin-off, spinoff, uh, and you have Uber experimenting with this, uh, and. You, you nonetheless still do have, um, although I think you're right that state and local have interest in it, uh, you, you have federal uh, you know, safety guidelines for automakers. So they're going to have to deal with this. Um, it's not my area of strict expertise, but I recall there being um, a spectrum, a number, I think it's one to eight uh, degree of autonomy. And uh, there are different levels there where, where you have uh, I think it was you know, Waymo somewhere in the middle where you could drive mostly around, but you needed someone in the car in order for, for emergencies and things like that. Uh, you, I, I'm a long-term optimist on that technology, for sure. Uh, cars cars are, are a great technology, but they're also really, really dangerous. Um, we're really bad at, at driving them. Uh, I think NISTA's um, estimate is that... What is it? I forget the exact figure, but something like ninety-four percent of auto fatalities can be attributed to human error. Uh, you know, cars when they're driven correctly in the right conditions are pretty safe, uh, and even when things go wrong, generally, seat belts, airbags, um, for for a lot of those kind of incidents, um, do save lives. Uh, the problems are, you know, humans um, don't have as quick reactions as we think. Uh, and do stupid things when driving so i think autonomous autonomous vehicles um are are potentially life-saving absolutely but but also will increase efficiency uh computers don't get tired um they can drive uh, 24 7 Uh, but this has been this has been a serious concern with um truckers uh the teamsters are not happy uh with (laughs) a lot of the developments here uh but i've i've always said though um well, not always. Um, I, I learned about these things relatively recently, um, but I, uh, I I think it's important to keep in mind that um, technology certainly can destroy jobs and displace jobs, but it also just changes jobs as well. And it's not hard to imagine a situation where truckers are, you know, the human being in a autonomous truck, but they still have to do um, the paperwork at both ends. They still have to provide security, cha- you know, filling it with gas, and it frees up truckers um, in the meantime when they're not driving to do uh other things and and who knows what that kind of world uh, looks like but um i would say in the long run i am a um, optimist on autonomous uh vehicles but i don't think the reporting on a lot of it helps i think everyone listening to this can remember the last time they heard a news story of a driverless car hitting someone or um or braking uh, but it's not a headline to say driver's car drove for hundreds of hours without incident you know uh, that's that's not a that's not a headline Um, Bad news makes headlines and good news usually takes time and doesn't.
1: Yeah, and there's there I, I there's an ethical component to that. I was on vacation with my family at at, at in Boston, I guess three three four summers ago, well, it was way before COVID, and we just happened to stop by the campus of MIT, and they had this little kiosk where you could take this this uh, quiz, where it was it was a it was an ethical thing to say. Well, if you if if you were driving and you had a choice between hitting the cat and hitting <laughs> the dog, which would you? And it was this whole series of questions, and then it kind of gave you a profile at the end, like, oh, you hate old people because that's where what you were hitting but i guess this was feeding into a project to say there's going to have to be potentially logic decisions that are made at the autonomous vehicle level that involve ethics like that uh, and we're going to have to make some decisions on what we want these things to do. Uh, do do we veer off and you know the whole trolleyology problem do you do you veer off and and hit somebody else or does does the, the person in the car bear the responsibility so any thoughts on that
3: Yeah, this is a a play on um, what's called the trolley problem, um, which uh, I know from my philosophy undergrad days. But this is um, this is often cited, right? The uh, well, you have a driverless car, and then, like you said, you know, uh, uh, a young girl and an old woman jump into the road at the same time, and you gotta hit one of them. Uh, And um, I don't. I think this is interesting stuff for classrooms to think about. But I think what's more likely. Is that uh, the people making this technology will program the cars to just follow the law, and uh, I, I think that mostly because uh, the the insurance industry is going to be a part of this, and no one I think wants to have their car insured by a policy where you know you could be sued by someone's family for saying, well, your car told it, your car told itself to kill my grandmother rather than a tree. <laughs> Uh, you know I, I just can't imagine that actually being a part of the programming. Um, but I think we, we we are eventually just going to be in a world where uh, we have vehicles that um, we we know a program to uh, follow the law and um, that will lead to perhaps you know in some edge cases some strange outcomes. but I think that's far preferable to asking I don't know Toyota and Honda and everyone to employ, AI ethicist to decide, you know, <laughs> here's what a profile of a child is. And if in doubt, just veer off and go off a bridge. Uh, because here's the other thing is you know, the, the logical implications of a lot of this are that if, if we actually had AI ethics that deep in a driverless car, no old person would ever get in a car because the logical implication would be, well, the car should always kill you. <laughs> and then like that, you know, there's that no objective person is going to ever uh, I mean, this is a little cruel to think about, but um, you've got to weigh up somehow. And, you know, yeah. this, it's just look, um, uh, if you're you're 80-something years old, I think there'll be a lot of philosophy undergrads who would say, yeah, you, you shouldn't kill either the cat or the child. You should, you know, drive the car off the bridge <laughs> or, or something. Um, but, no, I, I think this is all interesting. And, look, I, I pursued philosophy into graduate level for a reason. I find this kind of stuff fun, but I, I ultimately think it's unlikely that we'll be driving around in cars that are making ethical decisions like that
1: yes well ron and i both heard you on on free thoughts to another cato podcast so i figured i could go down the philosophy route with you a little bit right. um the the uh now there is there is a, a, a I guess a concern also with with uh flight as well so for example you have the the famous in, uh, incident of captain sullenberger landing the plane in the hudson river Right. And you wonder, is it should we give humans the final authority as to what to do in those situations? Because an an, an AI or a computer may have not been programmed to think creatively enough to try to land the plane in the Hudson River and would have tried to get back to uh, an airport. And that would have caused perhaps more more damage. So it's very interesting. You know, what point does the does the human creativity piece get to take over?
3: It is a good question. Um, I'd like to think anyone programming an airplane would build into it the capability to do something they're designed to do already, like these water landings. Um, because, mm. Well, whenever I sit in airplanes and they say, in the case of a water landing, I think this is never going to happen. <laughs> um, but but then that, that incident did happen. I thought, oh, I guess these do happen sometimes. Uh, that, uh, it must happen. Uh, I, I I think anyone um, designing an airplane AI would would probably build in something like that the, the the question of human interference um is most cited in these discussions in the context of um, military use of AI mm. or or killer robots you know do you want a predator drone that can identify likely terrorists by itself um, conduct surveillance on them by itself and then shoot a hellfire missile by itself um, my relatively not well thought out thoughts on this are the following, which is I, I do think the decision to take a life should ultimately be a human's, which is basically everything up until the pull the trigger decision can mostly be done by AI, I suppose. But, but there you also have the problem, which is, well, what if the, the drone has identified someone as a terrorist and has drawn a map of all of their connections to a terror cell? And then it's just wrong. It's just made a mistake and you kill an innocent person. Uh, That that raises all kinds of issues. But I don't want us to be skeptics of AI in the military writ large because I can see how it will uh, potentially save lives. Uh, I've said before that a a sea mine that can tell the difference between a fishing ship and an aircraft carrier is a good one. You you don't want um, civilians out on the ocean to be at risk of uh, sea mines designed um, to take down destroyers and aircraft carriers and things like that. Um, As ever, I, I don't think we need a ban x approach to this kind of technology unfortunately it just raises uh, difficult questions
1: interesting well we've got about three minutes left in this segment and i just want to ask you about something that i think is coming up in 2022 that you're involved with and that is the uh the smart city symposium mm-hmm. so i wonder if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that
3: right uh so smart city is a term that's applied to uh, i mean it's a broad term but the use of uh, smart tools or ai in infrastructure uh and in um, many functionings of cities so think of traffic lights of roads of um, public transport systems all these kinds of things uh and what i've done is i've um, asked for all people to submit papers and we're going to have a symposium next year of um, a few scholars who have yet to be announced so now's not the time i suppose uh <laughs> to discuss it but sure. uh, i i think this raises all kinds of interesting questions of well it would be great if Yeah, roads could communicate with local governments about the state of potholes or if traffic could be automatically diverted if there's accidents or if your infrastructure knows the weather, um, all those sorts of things. But it raises um, important privacy questions, uh, I think. So um, there's privacy questions. There are questions about ethics and safety, um, all of which I hope uh, will be discussed at the symposium.
1: Yeah. And well, and, it, and Ron and I were talking about this last week. It wasn't that kind of Disney's idea with Epcot, like kind of his 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 thought I think Epcot stands for Experimental City of Tomorrow, so
3: Oh, does it? Okay. Yeah. Um yeah, I didn't know that. Uh cool. Um yeah, it, it's been a I suppose a dream of a lot of people for a while to have uh smart cities, you know, the idea of people not having to worry about transport or uh, the weather affecting their plans um, and all these other uh, kinds of things, but there are significant um, privacy concerns. Yeah, you know, speaking, you know, it'd be great if you know the autonomous car could know my schedule and knows when to uh, pick up certain deliveries, or if you have children, you know, pick up Sally from soccer practice and then on the way back knows that there've been delays in other meetings and can take different routes. Or when I get back in the driver's car on the way home, it can tell my mood, so knows whether to prepare diet coke or maybe something stronger for when i get home i don't know uh that's um that, that's all you know it sounds pretty neat but uh there, there are policy considerations for
1: sure sure i have actually have seen in action one of those uh those cocktail makers automatic cocktail makers It <laughs> is a pretty neat I, I actually kind of want to mix my own cocktail thank you that's part of the charm of it for me but whatever so yeah yeah
3: um <laughs> uh, if you if you're interested in cocktails i'd recommend my, my former colleague uh, Peter Suderman from Reason is a big cocktail aficionado, so uh, he could tell you a lot about that.
1: Yes, yes, no, and he is very anti-cocktail machine. I, I've heard him heard him rant about that on on the on one of the Reason podcasts. So, but uh, anyway, we are up against our break. I want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending that email to ask T S O E. We are sponsored. We have a new sponsor uh, of the Soul of Enterprise called File. Uh, they are expense reporting. We'd love for you to check them out at filehq.com. But this segment is sponsored by my employer, and we're going to hear from them next, Sage.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN.
1: Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome.
2: It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating.
1: Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software
2: out there. And yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports.
1: Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. com.
4: Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the diamond-water paradox. Go to Patreon.com/tsoe and subscribe today, please. For the love of God, make it stop!
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Matthew Feeney, the director of Cato's project on emerging technologies. And Matthew, you wrote an article back in October, Today's Internet Speech Debates Are Dead End. What's next? And you're talking about big tech and how they, you know, moderate content and, of course, Section 230. But you you make the point that decentralized cryptocurrencies and social media platforms are going to give us alternatives to, quote unquote, big tech. These are growing, aren't they? These yeah. decentralized platforms.
3: Yeah. And I, I wish people knew more about them. if not um, to use them necessarily, but um, to inform themselves more in these debates over big tech. It seems so dominant these days that everyone is talking about uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, the usual suspects. Um, And what all of these companies have in common is a very centralized approach to content moderation, where these private companies write a set of rules and people who approach them have to follow them. And this has caused no shortage of uh, political controversies over the last few years. You have Republicans who typically are concerned about too much content being taken down. Um, on the left, you have many people concerned about too much content being left up. And that's usually in the context of COVID misinformation or election misinformation or uh, extremist speech. And what I tried to do in the piece that you, you highlighted is to point out that I think the First Amendment is a very stubborn barrier to any of these reform Mm -hmm. efforts that you may not like that Facebook and YouTube take down certain content, but they are allowed to do that. And uh, you may not like that there is the spread of misinformation online, but it is legal content. Uh, In in the United States, the category of illegal speech is very, very narrow. And most of the speech that listeners don't like is legal. And the point of the the article was to say, look, um, I, I think these... Um, debates are politically valuable, unfortunately, for a lot of the people making them, but they're policy dead ends. Nothing really, I think, is going to change significantly. I could be wrong, but I, I would bet against it. And I think, uh, given that, we should think more about uh, a social media environment where the centralized platforms that I discussed, or the centralized model I discussed earlier, isn't the dominating one, where um, there's more of a decentralized approach. And yeah, I outlined a few examples that this is um, not a idea original to me at all. Uh, and it may may be the future of, of social media. We've become very used to these centralized networks, but I think it would be a mistake to view their success as an axiom of, his, of history.
2: Right. Well, along those same lines, you also wrote a book review in the Cato Journal in the fall of this year, The Tyranny of Big Tech, which of course is Joshua Holloway his book uh, the senator from Missouri uh, his book the tyranny of big tech and and you can contrast it with um, who is a Shoshana Zuboff's surveillance capitalism book and of course there was that Netflix documentary the social dilemma should we be concerned about the privacy of these big tech companies and how they surveil us and the behavioral and mental health effects of this technology I, I do
3: mention in that review that while I didn't find most of Senator Hawley's recommendations persuasive, I think the most persuasive concern or the most poignant of his um, emerges from his discussion of his children and how he and his wife are trying to raise children in a, a world um, inundated with social media. And look, it, it's true that, that these private companies are rely on your attention um, for profit and they gather a lot of information about your interests and where you've been and they are competing with each other for digital advertising space and i think if you're concerned about that fortunately there is a option which is to not use these these (laughs) networks um and uh i look uh I'm not on all of these social social networks and depending who you ask lead a relatively normal life. Uh, you don't, you know, I, I think oftentimes people get away with saying it's a necessary condition of a modern life to be on Facebook. And um, I don't think that's true. Uh, it might. And I, I also though think that the main concern about the, the, the privacy, though, I, I would argue is not so much on the private platform level, but what uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies can do with all this data that they can, suck up because Google's sucking it all up. Right. Uh, you, you may not like Google and Facebook, but at least they can't arrest you. And that I think is a important distinction that sometimes gets lost in the mix there. Um, but we should also add, um, it's not all bad. I, I have found books that I enjoy on Amazon because Amazon thought I'd like them. Mm-hmm. Okay, like this is yep. ultimately, um, there you get into an interesting discussion though, where um, the left and the right seem to be merging on this really, you know, this question, but do you really want it if an advertiser is telling you that you really want it? Um, I come down on the side that I, I wouldn't worry as much about that as other people do. Uh, if, if Amazon wants to recommend me a book, I'm fine with that. But the important thing is to have choice. And at the moment, we have choice. And you can buy books elsewhere, you can go on social networks that aren't Facebook. And so until there is a real monopoly on these kind of platforms, I'm going to worry more about what state and local and federal law enforcement can do with the data than what Facebook does with the data.
2: Well, that's another great point that you make in that same article in the Cato Journal about Google and Facebook are not monopolies. They're competitors. So yeah. we need yeah. to stop using this word monopoly.
3: I agree. Um, unfortunately, that um, gets lost in a lot of the political rhetoric. Um, it's very fashionable on both sides of the aisle to um, be critical of these companies. And uh, I certainly um, understand where um, some of these complaints are coming from, but I don't think that is a excuse to be uh, inaccurate with language. You know, the word monopoly means something. Uh, I don't think that um, you have to describe Facebook as a monopoly to express your concern about them. And uh, I think you're doing oftentimes a disservice to your audience if you use that word to describe competitors. <laughs>
2: and matthew the argument and you hear this on both the left and the right which baffles me but that that section 230 is a subsidy to to big tech explain that why that's wrong
3: in two minutes right okay so uh yeah <laughs> I, I will i'll, I'll say uh, so section 230 <laughs> is the law that um broadly means uh facebook is not responsible for your facebook posts Um, if you're upset with my facebook post you can sue me but not facebook Uh, many people have tried to argue this is the equivalent of a multi-billion dollar subsidy to google and youtube and facebook and twitter because absent 230 these companies would have to spend all that money on lawsuits dealing with defamation and all this other stuff one um very quickly it just doesn't fit the classic definition of a subsidy it just is a silly way to think about it uh secondly these companies wouldn't have to spend a lot more money if there wasn't 230. They pr- just wouldn't exist in their current form. And three, most importantly, I suppose, is Section 230 is not for big tech. It's for websites, big and small. It's for interactive computer services that have two visitors a month, as well as those that have five million a month. And so to if anything, it is a law that levels the playing field. Um, to portray it as some favoritist thing um, for big tech is silly especially when the law was written in or passed in 1996 long before a lot of
2: these tech giants were even started right right the virtual square would be much smaller without section 230
3: absolutely yeah
2: yeah well matthew this has been wonderful thank you so much for coming on it's been an honor to be able to talk with you ed what do we have coming up next week
1: Next week, Ron, we're continuing our progress down I 95. you recall, we were in Boston last uh, two weeks ago, then New York, now in, in Washington with Matthew, and we're going down to Florida, and we're going to talk to Professor Samuel Staley about the economics and the Beatles.
2: Awesome. Looking forward to it. I'll see you in 166.
1: has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by sage transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive join us next week on friday at 3 p.m eastern that's noon pacific but in the meantime please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America.
3: Sustainable success is just around the corner. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, Tune in to Sustainable Success with host Chris Salem. Did you know that the path to success is a long path that started many years ago? The path you started on then determines what is happening now. Chris and his amazing guests in their field will help you navigate the path to sustainable success
4: every Thursday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Influencers
1: Channel.
0: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network
1: wherever you go.